So today we are continuing in the preaching through the sermon series of the Gospel of of John so that you might believe. My sermon title is The Lamb and the Lion. Will you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? We'll be reading through John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Starting in verse 13, it reads, The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what signs will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the the signs he was doing. However, Jesus would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your word this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and through this message you would increase, Lord, and that we would all leave this room changed closer to you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In December 2005, the movie version of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe was released in movie theaters. I could tell you that it was a great movie, and for the most part, it is pretty faithful to the books. The book and movie are essentially part of one of a series of books by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia, and Narnia is another world outside of our own. It's a world inhabited by centaurs, dwarves, talking wolves, beavers, fawns, and all kinds of mythical creatures. The land of Narnia is covered in an endless winter as a result of a cruel white witch. And this world is just waiting for this winter to end. The central character of this book is a lion by the name of Aslan, and Aslan represents Christ. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis is asking, what would it look like if Christ had come to that world to bring salvation. One of the differences between the book and the movie is the portrayal of Aslan. When the four children, Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter, end up in Narnia, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell them about Aslan. They learn that Aslan is the true king and the son of the emperor beyond the sea. When they learn that Aslan is a lion, the lion, not a man, Susan says, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver replies, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, 
They're either braver than most or just quite silly. Then the youngest of the children, little Lucy, she says, then he isn't safe. To this question, Mr. Beaver replies, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Likewise, there is a memorable passage in C.S. Lewis' Voyage of the Dawn Treader that will help us understand the text today. Lucy and Edmund are engaged in their venture when they come to a large grassy expanse. The sensuous green of the grass spreads off into the blue horizon except for a white spot that's in the middle of the green expanse. As Edmund and Lucy look at this spot intently, they have difficulty making out what it is. Being adventurous, they travel across the grass until finally the white spot comes into view. It's a lamb, the lamb, white and pure. It, the lamb is cooking a fish, breakfast. The lamb gives Lucy and Edmund the most delicious breakfast they've ever had. And after they had eaten, a wonderful conversation ensues as they talk about how to get to the land of Aslan, or heaven. As the lamb begins to explain the way, a marvelous thing happens. As Lewis records it in his book, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed as he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. See, there's a great truth in these stories that we need to remember, and it's simply this. Jesus is a lamb, but also Jesus is a lion. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And the qualities that we consider lamb-like, gentleness, innocent, those are indeed in Christ. But so are the qualities of majesty and the ferocity of a lion. So when we read this story about cleansing the temple, how would you describe Jesus here? Do we see Jesus from that famous hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild? Or from the hymn, Gentle Shepherd? Would the Jesus from these hymns fashion a whip of cords? Would he overturn tables? Would he throw into disarray the worship practices of the day? Would he so deliberately provoke religious leaders? No, the Jesus we have in this story from John's gospel is neither gentle, nor meek, nor mild, nor is he safe. The Jesus we have in this story is not so much the Lamb of God as John describes him earlier in the gospel. Rather, what we see here in this passage today is Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. As the lion, he does indeed bear his teeth in this scripture. Like a man possessed, Jesus drove out animals out of the temple courts. We see him passionate, driven, dramatic, and yes, it seems angry. But remember, anger in itself is not a sin. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. It reads, be angry, but do not sin. There is a kind of anger that is called righteous anger. If we see anger on display here, it is a kind of anger. It's that kind of anger. It's righteous anger that Jesus displays. But of course, this leaves us asking the question, if he is angry, why is Jesus angry? Why did he overturn the tables and drive out the animals? 
and spill all the coins of the money changers. Why did he do this? What was he trying to say? What do we learn from and about Jesus in this story and in this text today? First, let me give you some context on temple worship. During this time, it was the Passover. The Passover was an annual Jewish feast commemorating and celebrating the liberation of the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. This is perhaps the most central and important festival in Jewish tradition. Without the events of this festival that celebrates, there would not be an Israel, a temple, and a people of God. It was a privilege, a pilgrimage festival, meaning that many people traveled great distances to worship in Jerusalem during the Passover. To celebrate the Passover cattle, sheep, and doves were required for burnt offerings in the temple. But those who had the journey far away would not likely have brought animals with them. It was just too hard to bring animals that far of distance. Therefore, they needed to buy animals in Jerusalem in order to participate in the temple worship. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking? Yes. Well, unfortunately, despite how legitimate the practice was, the spirit behind these practices was not. Priests required that travelers purchase animals at the Jerusalem temple and nowhere else, and they could charge whatever they liked, also that people could offer acceptable sacrifices. To make sure that this happened, the priests had to inspect and approve of all animals brought into the temple from the outside. All the priests had to do was to reject the animal, and another one had to be purchased. It was more or less required that your sacrificed animal had to come from the temple court. They could charge whatever they wanted. And of course, it was all in the name of acceptable sacrifice and right worship. So what about the money changers? Why were they there? Well, all Jewish males and proselytes were required to pay a half shekel temple tax in the coinage of the temple. This was essentially what they called a worship tax. Furthermore, any foreign currency bearing the images of pagan deities or rulers those were also unacceptable. So the money changers would exchange foreign currency for a fee. Not only that, but there was a time when these activities took place outside of the temple. But now the merchants, animals, money changers, all those things and activities, those moved inside of the temple. The specific area where they set up shop was the outermost court, the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were permitted to worship in the outermost court. Remember, Israel was to be light to all nations and a blessing to all peoples. Jesus also saw money changers whose jobs it was to exchange the money that the people brought for the special silver or half a shekel for the temple tax. The people couldn't just use any coin in the temple for that tax. People came from all over the world. And some of the coins had impressions of heathen gods or whoever was their district leader or whatnot. Or it could have even been a picture of Caesar on the coin. It was considered blasphemy to those inside the temple to offer a coin with the image of a heathen for the service of God's holy temple. The money changers would exchange their coins for the temple coin. The temple had become a mall. It had become a Walmart. 
for the convenience of people. It was a one-stop shopping center, everything in one place. You see, they used the outer court for this mall. They used... There were four courts in the temple. I'm going to go through those. First, we have the outer court. Then we have the court of the priests, which was the inner court where only the priests could go. Then you had the court of the Jews, where only natural-born Jews were allowed. It was the court where they handed over the sacrifices to the priests. The courts of women, where the women were allowed and could go no further. The court of the Gentiles was outside. It was a large open area that had turned into what was described as a shopping mall or a super Walmart. When Jesus comes to the temple, he saw the booth set up for the merchants. He saw the money changers. They was all set up, ready to go, exchanging their money. So what was the problem? What was the problem? The marketplace had moved into the temple area, and the temple of God had been dishonored. Instead of worship, prayer, and praise, Jesus found a feeding frenzy of corruption and greed. So what happened? Ananias, the high priest, had sold frankincense for the concession stands to the various merchants and money changers, to the highest bidder. So if you had the highest bidder, you can come on in. Be a part of this. He was making a killing. The merchants were charging inflated prices for the oxen, sheep, and doves. If you brought your own oxen, sheep, or dove, the priest would tell you that it was unclean. You got to buy from us. So they would just turn you around, and you would have to go find another animal. And if it wasn't for them, they would describe that animal as unclean. It didn't matter how many times you came back with whatever animal, you had to have their stuff. The money changers would cheat, pe cheat people by charging an unfair exchange rate for their foreign coins. Can you imagine that? One year you come, it's this rate. Next year you come, it's another rate. And it just keeps on going year after year. And all you want to do is worship your Lord and Savior. You want to worship God. But there is a stumbling block in the way. And it's harder each and every year for you and your family to worship the Lord. Jesus saw this. Jesus saw the greed. Jesus saw the corruption. Jesus saw the wickedness being carried out right there in the temple of God. And where was it at? It was in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was a place set aside for those who were not born Jewish, but had converted to Judaism. They had seen that Jehovah God was the only one and true God, and they renounced their pagan ways, and they turned to the God of the Jews. Proselytes were looked upon by the Jews as being in the lower class. For a Gentile to become a Jew, he had to be circumcised, baptized, and he had to offer a sacrifice. After his baptism, he was given a new Jewish name. He had to cut off all ties with his family. Even if his wife, she, she didn't convert, he had to cut off ties with her as well. Jesus looked upon these Gentiles in a very special people in the eyes of God. The Jews thought that by their birth, they had inherited a place in God's kingdom. They thought highly of themselves just because they were born that way. Does that sound familiar?
They thought that all God required was for them to be born a Jew. However, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. He tells them, Paul lets them know, just because you're of Israel, you're not, you're not with us. These Gentiles, after all, had not been born a Jew. They chose to become Jewish. They chose to serve and honor the God of the Jews. They had sacrificed to come into God's family. They wanted to worship God in his temple correctly and the right way. We find in the scriptures later that it was the Jews who rejected Christ. Isn't that ironic? It was the Jews who persecuted the Apostle Paul and wouldn't let him speak in their synagogues. It was to the Gentiles that Paul turned to with the gospel. Jesus was appalled at what he saw taking place in the court of the Gentiles. John chapter 2 verse 15 reads, After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money, changers, coins, and overturned the tables. Notice that Jesus didn't all of a sudden, he just didn't all of a sudden just go off on them. He didn't all of a sudden lose it. He didn't just fly off the handle. I can just imagine seeing Jesus, he was walking around. He was observing the chaos. He probably picked up some leather cord that was laying around and he probably began to tie them, tie them up. Those cords were used to, for the animals. And he was just walking around, stringing those cords together, tying them into a small whip. Jesus was hearing all the commotion, the arguing over the exchange rate, the bargaining over the price of the animals, the anger voices of those who were being cheated, who couldn't participate in the temple today. Jesus was smelling the stench of the livestock market in the court of the Gentiles. As he was walking, he was stepping over the manure. He was sidestepping the path of oxen and sheep. Jesus was watching the greed of the merchants and the cheating, the profiteering. It was just a circus-like atmosphere. Then we see Jesus got angry. But this wasn't the way God's house was supposed to be treated. I can imagine Jesus must have been saying to himself as he's walking through the court, like, okay, y'all want to act up? I got something for y'all to learn today. Mm-hmm. Something for y'all to learn today. Jesus didn't ask for permission. Jesus acted with authority. Everybody moved out the way. No one presented a fight. It was not so much a physical force that kept them at bay, it was his moral power. He spoke, they move. I sometimes wonder what God thinks about his church in the 21st century. Have we gotten off the path that he wanted us to follow? Have we turned his house into a social club? Are we just going through the motions of worship? Have we lost focus on true worship of our heavenly father? Jesus saw their attitude Jesus saw their actions. Our attitude towards the house of God is a reflection of our attitude towards God. 
Our attitude towards the house of God is a reflection of our attitude towards God. So what brought these things to this point? First, they let a good thing go bad. I imagine that the first priest started providing animals nearby so people didn't have to lead or, or to carry animals from, from their home. Some of those folks would have traveled long distances and for extended periods of time to get the temple and would not be easy to carry a sacrifice. So the priest began selling some nearby. And the money changers, there was a temple, temple tax. Folks were expected to pay yearly to help support the temple. Remember when they charged Jesus the tax and then he sent Peter to go catch a fish and to take the money for the tax out of the fish's mouth and Peter was just amazed? That was a tax to help support the temple. Well, most of the coins in these, day, in these days either had a picture of an emperor or one of their gods on it. The Jews didn't, didn't want any graven images on that coin when they did their exchange for the temple tax. But somewhere along the, the way, those good things got distorted. The animals moved into the temple, and the priests began charging extreme prices for them. Then they began charging robbery rates for the temple coins. What started as a good thing went out bad. Secondly, they did not guard against encroachment. They did not guard against encroachment. They did not check to see if what they were doing was still in alignment with God's word. It was not in alignment with their original intentions with what God had intended when he told them to build a temple in the first place. They failed to stop and check and see if what they were doing was still meeting the original objectives. We can do that, can't we, church? We can go ahead and we can begin to read our Bible every day. We can begin to pray every day. We got calendars, apps, programs, and we're just doing it. And then next it becomes mundane. It becomes at the end of the day, you're, you're looking around. Did I do that? Did I check that off the list? It can happen to us too. We have to be aware and attentive. Moving on to verse 17. It reads, And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is why Jesus reacted as he did. This is why he overturned the tables, set the animals loose, and spilled the money everywhere, preventing such practices from continuing for at least a time being. Jesus was responding to the fact that his father's house, his father's house, this house should be a house of prayer. This house should be a house of worship. But it had been turned into a marketplace, a place for buying and selling of religion. Both Jews and Gentiles who were coming here to worship were being charged to do so. The temple worship had changed from true worship to a practice of religion. And when true worship is replaced by religion, God, as we see, becomes a lion. In our story today, Jesus gives us a perfect picture of the scripture that says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. 
while Jesus was yelling at the buyers and sellers to take their merchandise and coinage out of the temple, we are told that his disciples remembered a scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. This comes from Psalm 69, verse 9. Note that John has altered the reference to Psalm 69, verse 9 in our passage. It reads, zeal for your house will consume me. By changing the verb tense from past to future, from zeal for your house has consumed me in the psalm to zeal for your house will consume me in our verse, Jesus knew that he would be consumed, that he would be killed, that he would be crucified out of the zeal for obedience to his father. Through his death, not only would Jesus cleanse the temple, he would replace it. He would fulfill its purposes. God's purpose will be fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 18 reads, So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? So after all the commotion, all everything settles down, Jesus calms, Jesus calms down and everything, the profiteers have been removed from the temple. Next, you have another group coming to confront Jesus. Don't you see? After you just got through with one battle, here comes another battle. They coming. Woo! And then the Jews, probably the priests and religious authorities, they approach Jesus and they question him. What sign will you show us for doing this? It's interesting here that they show less concern for what he did than for who did it. They aren't looking for a sign in terms of a miracle here. They're looking for evidence that Jesus has the authority to disrupt and condemn their religious practices. It seems like what they're saying is this. Who are you to cleanse the temple? What gives you the right to do this? One biblical scholar puts it this way. Jesus throws the mechanics of temple worship into chaos, disrupting the temple system during one of the most significant feasts of the year so that neither sacrifices nor tithes could be offered that day. And who was he to derail their worship? Who was he? And so let's see, what does Jesus say? Not only does he not provide any evidence of authority, he confuses the leaders even more by telling them he will raise the temple in three days if they tear it down. And they were just scratching their heads. They're like, what are you talking about? They didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. Why didn't they get it? Because their hearts were hardened. And if their hearts weren't hardened, if the people and the leaders, if their hearts weren't hardened with greed and other things, Jesus might not have had to take such extreme actions. Maybe they could have had a reasonable conversation. You know, I don't know that having all this business happening up in the temple courts is a good way to honor God. They could have had that conversation, right? Do you think you might consider moving it outside of the temple and you could stop extorting people? Oh, sure, Jesus. You're probably right. We're wrong. We'll do what you say right away. They could have had a simple, simple conversation. 
But we all know that's not going to happen, right? Things have gone way too far. Nah, Jesus, you affected my pocketbook. I'm expected to make this much amount of money out of this whole situation. So what did Jesus have to do? He had to have a wake-up call to a nation and to a people and to a leadership that had been asleep and complacent for far too long. There was no other way. Verse 19 reads, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. So Jesus tells them to tear down the temple and that he will raise it up in three days. This further confuses and infuriates the religious leaders. This temple had been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? They couldn't believe it. It was absurd. This is ridiculous. But of course, we all know that Jesus is not referring to the physical building of the temple in Jerusalem. The gospel makes it quite clear. Jesus is here referring to his own body, his own death, his own resurrection. But why would Jesus bring this up now? Is this not a strange place to raise the topic of his death and resurrection? Well, Jesus was doing far more than responding to the corruption he saw. So while we've already seen some of the reasons why Jesus cleansed the temple, Israel was failing in its mission to the Gentiles and true worship had denigrated into self-serving religion. Jesus is doing something much more radical and all-encompassing. Jesus is challenging the very system of the temple itself, its religion, its authority, its worship. He's challenging all of that. This is why he brought up his death and resurrection in the way he did. He was telling them that it was his body that was the true object of true worship. Another scholar comments that since for Judaism, for the temple is the locus or location of God's presence on earth, verse 21 suggests that Jesus' body is now the locus or location of God. No longer does the temple represent the presence of God, for now on Jesus represents the presence of God. Indeed, Jesus is the word of God made flesh to dwell among us. In other words, it won't be long. Indeed, in John's gospel, the time had already come when you won't have to go to the temple to worship God. Once Jesus is raised, it is through him that we all will worship. It is through him that we do worship. Moving on to verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the things he was doing. That's a good thing, right? If I came to report and we had an event yesterday and I said... Many believed in his, his, in his name. It's a good thing. So you come to verse 23, you read it, and you think, this is good. People are believing. This is good. And then you start reading verse 24, which starts with the words, however, or but, uh, in many other translations. Now, that can't be good. One verse later, that's not good. It's kind of like a person who says to you, I really like what you're doing with your hair. 
however, but, and gives you a suggestion. <laughs> or you know you're my best friend, right, but I got this other person. Isn't there something in you that makes you just forget everything when you come to that word, but, everything that they said before that? And you're just waiting to hear. <laughs> okay, what you talking about? Everything that comes after that, you're intently focused on. That's kind of what's happening here when John goes on to say in verse 24 and 25, and it reads, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Doesn't reading those two verses after reading verse 23 that people were believing in Jesus make you wonder what in the world is going on here? There's a lot going on in these little three verses. But what's going on here is important. And John is telling us simply that not all belief is belief that saves. Not all belief is belief that saves. That's made clear by the fact that Jesus knows what's going on knows what's going on in our hearts and since he knows that he he ain't entrusting himself to you because he knows your heart verse 23 says he knew all people not just some but he knows all people it means he sees what they really are we saw a glimpse of this truth back in chapter 1 verse 47 when Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and he said behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. How did he know that? Nathaniel, even in himself, was surprised. How you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under that big tree, yeah, I saw you, bro. I saw you. I saw your heart. I know you. And there's no deceit in you. Jesus knows the true nature of man. John says plainly here that in verse 25 that Jesus knew what was in man. While you and I know about people because we hear of and see the things that they do, verse 25 makes it clear that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man. He doesn't need to see people's actions or hear the witness of others about their actions. Jesus knows their heart too. He knows their real motives. He knows their real intentions, their real longings of the heart. While we don't know what's truly in the heart of man, there's no guessing about the heart of man for Jesus. What we learn from this account may make us uneasy, may be challenging, but that's an uneasiness that we need to feel. We learn something about man here, don't we? We learn that though some may say they believe in Jesus and show outward signs of belief, not all appears to be belief is belief that saves. We can see that in the text because Jesus was not entrusting himself to those whom he knew weren't really believing in him. John says they were believing in his name. But the idea here is that it was not saving belief in his name. It was belief that he had some kind of authority. These were people who were seeing the signs of Jesus that he was performing. So they saw his healing. They saw his healing of the sick and the casting out of the demons. And they were believing that, yeah, he's someone special. 
I need to follow. I need to like this guy. Put a heart on him. But they weren't putting faith in him as a savior. They weren't making him Lord of his life. They just liked what he was doing. John Gilt notes that many believed that he was some great prophet or the prophet or the Messiah. They gave an historical assent to him as such, at least for that time. But Jesus knew their hearts and knew that this belief was not true belief because it was not true heartfelt. They might have said, we want to go where he goes. They might have liked what he was saying. They may have taken great hope in the miracles that they saw him performing. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hearts inside and out. So when Jesus looked at them, he looked at them differently. And when things got difficult, they would be numbered among their true followers if they truly believed. But some of them didn't. You see, they were attracted to the miracles, but not the man. They saw the signs, but they didn't see the Savior. And since Jesus could see that they really didn't see and believe, he would not be a part of them. And that returns us to what we learn about Jesus here, and that points to his deity. John is showing us who Jesus is so that we'll believe. He does want us to be those people who can only see miracles and not the man. He doesn't want us to be those people. He wants us to see the true Savior that Jesus is. What we see here is the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this? It's he's all-knowing. God's omniscience is clear throughout Scripture. Let's take Psalms 33, 13 to 15, for example, starting in verse 13. God's word reads, The Lord looks down from the heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. See, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, knows everything. Of course, we see it in passages here in John chapter 2, 24 and 25. But let the truth of Christ and its implications sink in. Think of this. If Jesus knows everything, even your heart, and he does, then it follows that he knows just what you need. He knows just how you need to be saved from your sin. He knows how to help you. He knows how to sustain you through temptations. Jesus knows. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows that it's not being excited by his miracles that save you. It's only by the shedding of his blood that saves us all. And as Hebrews 8:22 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 26 of that chapter, it says, Jesus says, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's like, you got that sin, put it on me. Jesus is telling you, put those things that you covet, that you have challenges with, that are your temptations, everything, put that on me. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Put everything through Jesus. We see in Proverbs 21, verse 2, makes it clear that the Lord knows your heart. It reads, every way of the man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So John's gospel in the closing of chapter 2 is that it's only the beginning in your faith. Some saw the signs that Jesus performed and had what they saw. That was, might have been the beginning of their faith, but only Jesus knows. So be certain that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that is good. Because he and he alone can only save you. Church, I want to close with this. John 1, 9 to 11 reads, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, all that did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And if you have believed in Christ, then be certain that your constant hope is in nothing but Jesus Christ. And it's all because Jesus is our lamb and Jesus is our lion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you today, Lord, and thank you for being our lamb. Thank you that your blood was shed on the cross so that we may know you, so that our sins may be forgiven, Lord, and thank you for being our lion, Lord. Lord, helping us through sanctification, clearing up the house, reminding us of what needs to be corrected in our lives. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.